Welcome to Paranormativity, hosted by Drs. Amanda Furiase and Cher Afghan Tariq. Enter if you dare. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Paranormativity, Religion, Arts and Technology. We have another episode today, and today's discussion will center around the notion of time. So, Amanda, would you like to get going and then I'll check in? <laughs> yeah, sure. We can talk about time from different elements. Um, I think I had, so we can talk about it from a physics standpoint and then think about it in terms of religion, because mm -hmm. of course, Islam has a different notion of time than the Hebrew Bible, than Judaism and Christianity. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can piece that out. Yeah, because I wanted to ask the question, is time an illusion? Uh, you probably have heard or thought about time, that time is really, really important mm -hmm. in terms of physics, in terms of like just kind of thinking about the order of the universe and the role that it plays. Mm -hmm. Well, I read a book recently. It's called The Order of Time by, let me get the, Carlo Rebelli, mm -hmm. a physicist who refutes the notion of time, who argues that time is in fact an illusion. And he goes at it from a physics perspective where he refutes um, Einstein, uh, the theory of relativity, because relativity is always time is relative. But so from a physics element, they don't say time is necessary. Like time is a, a space time is part of the universe, the basic substance. I can talk more about that at length. But um, Einstein, the relativity of time, is, of course, time is subjective. Um, that's what's very important. So that there is time, but time can is bendable, it's flexible, it's different for different people, and it has different effects on different people. Yeah. All right, so it's a matter of perception. So there's subjectivity to the universe. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Einstein proposed, and then physics has later shown that this is true, that time can be bent. Can time be inverted? This is another question, because if you think about it, um, okay, a simple idea is like water. Water can go from ice, and then it goes to, you know, liquid, and then it can go to vapor. It's got those three states. And it can go back and forth between those three different states. So from that element, you know, time is very flexible. You know, thinking about it, it can go from vapor to ice very quickly. So it can go from vapor to snow something like that. Um, but normally it will go from vapor to water and then to ice, but it can be reversed in the flow and all this stuff. Anyhow, <laughs> point being. Um, so yeah, because this is the idea of is time cyclical? This is another hypothesis, um, all sorts of stuff because religion handles it in specific ways. So we can talk more about how religion handles it and then come back in on physics. Super. Yeah, um, and I can talk more about the order of time. A good book that I'm reading um, for my own work because in my own work I propose that yeah time is we're not moving forward but we're moving backward is what I propose or there's an inversion we're caught in like a time loop and that's what this guy argues from a physics perspective is that we're caught in this kind of constant loop so just before we move forward his critique of Einstein is that in relativity, mm -hmm. thinking of time as relative, nevertheless, makes it just 
you can experience the way you do, I experience the way I do. It doesn't really have a robust yeah. argument about time. It just makes it anyone can have their own relative experience about time. Yeah, he says time is literally an illusion. So he takes Einstein's point of subjectivity further yeah. and argues that it's actually something that we're bestowing to the universe to make sense of it that isn't... Okay. So he even goes further. So, he presses this point about subjectivity. Yeah, exactly. So, the, so he, he's critiqued. The illusion that he's highlighting is the sense that we're moving ahead in time. Yeah. So he's, um, yeah. So that we're moving ahead. Uh, we were, from his perspective, like the whole thing is an illusion that gives us a sense of order. But it's, it's inherently subjective. And we're involved in the making of time. Always. And he goes, comes at it from all the physics and you know, all the equations and things like that. Yeah, exactly. So he just takes Einstein's point to the next level yeah. and says, well, if it's all subjective, well, wait a second, who's determining at what moment? Because the problem with time is we have no way to measure it. Yeah. We can only measure its effects. Yeah. So if you think about yourself, um, okay, well, how do you know time's moving. Well, you look at yourself and you're like, oh, I got gray hair up here or I got wrinkles here or whatever. And there's a sense that time is, and that's how we read time. It's effects on matter. Yeah. It's based on matter of our body. Yeah. yeah. Um, but from, yeah, I guess he's arguing from his perspective that even that is subjective and that time, age could be moving. He even presupposes that people could be aging at different speeds than other people. You know, it's really interesting to think about the advent of childhood. Yeah. Because we have this thing, oh, look, the kid a year ago, look how much they changed. First year birthday, second year birthday, third year birthday, right? And then you can see around late 19th, early 20th century, very delineation of age groups, like age 4 to 8, 8 to 12, 12 mm -hmm. to 16. For each age group, you have different problems, requirements, curriculum etc right mm -hmm. but a sense what you're saying and following this person's argument all of these gradients in the school system was mm -hmm. an attempt to manufacture time and yeah exactly it's happening because of the effects we're seeing in the kids like we really don't know how to measure other than seeing the effects on these children or reforming yeah. them into displaying certain kinds of four-year-old behavior yeah and eight -year -old behavior you know Oh, yeah, because I'm like halfway, I'm like into the book. Yeah, he does bring up childhood because the notion of childhood, yeah, is important for establishing it's a linear framework. A for linear time. framework of time because if the four year old is behaving like a 12 year old, yeah. that would disconcert the educators. Right. And if he doesn't follow their linear. Exactly. So if you see a child and you say he's an old soul yeah, or yeah, she's yeah. an old soul, what are you really saying? They're not behaving according to their age mm -hmm, exactly and you're kind of like wild by it, of time. but really you're actually upset yeah. <laughs> you're not okay about it yeah. it, it messes you up a little bit so mm -hmm. it's a phrase of endearing, endearing but it's really also kind of like what's going on here mm -hmm. yeah it doesn't fit your yeah he also uses the argument uh if you look at different societies throughout history yeah. they've all organized their societies around different frameworks of time so indigenous societies um, have organized around cyclical notions of time. Stonehenge, I'm making a video on that. Mm -hmm. We know Stonehenge was uh, created. That's going to be on prophetic visions. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's um, constructed in circles. Mm -hmm. So any society that's really into circles. So Asian societies, Buddhist societies, for example, have the, um, what is it, the mandalas? Mm -hmm. uh, 
um, the circles, mandalas, yeah. mandalas, uh, yeah. Hinduism and Buddhism. Yeah. So they're cyclical. Hinduism cyclical. Islam is cyclical, sort of. Mm -hmm. uh, it, Islam has an interesting, which we can get more into. Um, it's cyclical, but it's also start, stop, reverse, go back, yeah. <laughs> move forward. Uh, and we'll talk, I, I guess we can get into that. Yeah, thinking about, because the Quran has probably yeah. one of the most interesting notions of time. Um, and what I mean by that is when you read the Bible, the Bible is linear. It has a beginning <laughs> has, and it has an end. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, so it starts with Genesis. It starts with the story of the creation of humanity and the earth, and then it moves through, uh, to like, uh, Joseph and then, well, all the patriarchs, right? One by one. And then you got the conclusion, you have Moses, you have going into the land of Israel. Then you have the prophets, the building of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have the new Testament, you have Jesus, Jesus comes back, rises from the dead. Then you have Paul. Mm -hmm. Paul's like the end. All right. Uh, so it actually, and then you have the apocalyptic text, yeah. <laughs> you have revelation. Um, so it's moving one next, 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 like a row of dominoes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. The Quran does not, right. the Quran follows the prophet's life. However, it interjects, the prophet is routinely interjected with revelations from the angel Gabriel that are appearing not in a linear framework. So Gabriel's not saying to him, well, today we're going to do the story of the creation of humanity. Then we're going to move to, right, one for one. Instead, um, all these revelations are kind of occurring. Moreover, they're occurring within the prophet's own life. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the prophet's moving forward in his life, and yet the angel Gabriel will interject and suddenly go back to the start of mm -hmm. creation mm -hmm. in the middle of the prophet, whatever he's doing at that moment. So it's an interjection of time. It's like an interlacing, an interlocking yeah. of time. Yeah. So it, and that's unique as as a text. I think. I mean, you don't you don't see that in a, in a lot of texts. Sometimes you see texts be very cyclical. That's common. But this interlacing and interlocking, and then of course, within Islam itself, you see this notion of time come into the fold with tessellation. Um, tessellation within, uh, so tessellation is where you take one thing and then you pattern it, you stack it on top of each other like a pattern mm -hmm. so that you can make more complex patterns. So like the idea of a snowflake, you start with one basic geometric shape and then you layer it to increase its complexity. And that's how the Quran works. You know, it starts with the prophet's lives, but there's all these interjections, this interlacing of geometric designs that are making it very complex. Because that's one thing that a lot of my students complain about when I teach uh, intro to Islam and the Islam courses where a lot of students who are used to the Judeo-Christian tradition, used to reading the Bible. They're like, where are we at? <laughs> like, I, I need a linear framework. I, you know, they want me to go up on the board and be like, okay, this happens and then this, but they're like, all of a sudden, the text goes back and then we get a revelation and then we're back over here in the prophet's life. And it's very difficult for them to follow mm -hmm. because from their perspective, there's, they're not, they say there is no pattern. That's a, they'll often say, mm -hmm. what's the pattern here? I'm like, there's a pattern there. You're just not used to the pattern. You know, there's this uh, French uh, scholar, Fernand Brodel, mm -hmm. uh, a, a very important figure in this French school of writing history called the Annal School. And his key argument was that too often when we write history, 
we tend to talk about time as in a linear sense. Yeah. We look at important historical figures, monarchs, kings, mm. etc. Mm. And we look at the effects they had on history like between 14 years, between 1850 and 1864. This yeah. is what happened because this person passed a degree in or a law or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if you shift away from that, he argues for a kind of <coughs> a recurrence, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of similar to your argument of tessellation, that one layer, then another layer, then another layer, and you go back and you go up and you go mm-hmm. back and you can't really, there's a pattern because there is a certain mm-hmm. repetition, mm-hmm. but you're not moving ahead, ahead, you know, you're kind of going back and back mm-hmm. or like re- repeating things over time. And it's really interesting when you think about it, it may sound very different but if you look at it, how you can apply that this one person wrote a book called the gulf the history of an american sea mm-hmm. he's writes a history of the gulf ocean it's not about a person it's not about some emperor or some senator or some mm-hmm. important historical figures the the, the ocean mm-hmm. the gulf as an agent as a historical actor right very similar way where the muhammad here is not just one linear person in his life from childhood to to death but really it's about these revelations interjecting mm-hmm. gabriel seas are similar environment moves in a similar way environment right. doesn't approach time linearly like the gulf doesn't wake up and go to bed and then go and fall asleep and then die mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so it's, well, it you makes can, a lot of sense yeah you can think about it in your own life too i mean yeah. it's um in your own life uh, when you're going through your, your normal day, all of a sudden you'll be hit by a memory for so, something yeah. will trigger it. Yeah. Maybe it's a movement. Maybe it's something somebody said to you. Yeah. And all of a sudden you'll go back in time to that moment, to that memory. So, and you'll, so you'll go like 30, 20 years back in time and suddenly you're, you're out of, you are there, yeah, and then yeah. you come back forward within that, even though it might just be a split second, nonetheless, within that split second, what happens is an unraveling of that linear framework. Absolutely. You don't uh, pay attention to your whereabouts in that particular moment. Yeah. You're not paying attention to what's happening around you in that moment. You are really time traveling yeah, to the you're, past. Yeah, you're time traveling. So in African societies, I study Ethiopian Jewish communities. So in Ethiopia, there's a community of Jewish communities that go all the way back to the Queen of Sheba. That's where they take their, uh, if you remember in the Bible, Sheba is very much into Solomon. Mm-hmm. Very much. <laughs> um, do they have an affair? What's going on? Well, the Bible references that Sheba and Solomon do kind of have an affair. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't go into too much detail because, of course, Solomon's married to a good Jewish girl. <laughs> so it doesn't want to go too much into the Sheba. But there are references in the Hebrew Bible that clearly this relationship was very important. <laughs> they were very much into each other. Well, in the Ethiopian Jewish tradition, they go more into detail about Sheba and Solomon. And that's basically Sheba has a child with Solomon. Um, and then that child returns along with Sheba. Um, back to Ethiopia because she's the queen of Ethiopia. So she's got to go back to her kingdom, um, which is, it would have been very easy to travel from actually Ethiopia to Israel at the time. Of course, uh, you have the Red Sea, you have the Nile, you have all these things. So it would have been very interconnected, but nonetheless, she returns. And then this Jewish community is fostered there Mm -hmm. for hundreds, thousands of years. Anywho, what's very important is that Ethiopian Jews have this unique ritual practice Mm -hmm. that allows them to time travel. Mm -hmm. It's called Eskesta, Mm -hmm. is what they call it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's a variety of theories about where this comes from, but, and I can go into that too, but the basic idea is they use movement as movement and emotion as a mechanism to time travel and to actually tell history. So the idea that Ethiopian Jews have is that uh, basically your memories of your ancestors, your past and your future are locked within your bodies. You know, this reminds me a lot of Anna Gabe's work on, she has a chapter on the Quran. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a book on, she, she, she studies Indonesian Islam. And, mm -hmm. and her point was, forgetting what exact article, but that uh, if you, uh, that Muslims are supposed to emulate the Prophet's life. In Prophet's life, these are various stations of life in which he has various emotions and those emotions are yeah. memories of the past. So it's really even his life is similar to the Eskesta. When you brought up his life earlier, you said, yes, that is <coughs> actually even the life has that kind of sense of Eskesta. Yeah. But when we're emulating him in practice, we're really doing Eskesta. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that's it. So that emotion is the mechanism by which you time travel. Yeah. And it, this makes sense. Uh, yeah, because emotions do. If you think about it within your own life, what allows you to go back into time? What imagines you to uh, or allows you to imagine possible futures? Always emotion. That's why um, if you listen to music, something like that, music is very good at triggering emotion. So sometimes you listen to music and it can help you time travel. Either it can help you imagine different futures. It can help you go back to the past. Oh, yeah, Emotion yeah. is that. And that's this idea with Eskesta is that you use movement and music to cultivate certain emotions that allow you to go back to Shiva, to go back to wherever your ancestor, and even to go forward in time. It's very true. I recall vividly 2003, October, I moved to the United States. And months leading into the eventual travel, I was hooked on uh, Phil Collins. Mm -hmm. It was one particular album with some <laughs> of the great Phil Collins songs. Point being is I had the CD because back then we used to listen to the CD, right? So we came and we left our luggage in this house uh, in the basement of one of those Washington, D.C. They've got all these mm -hmm. very tiny homes in DuPont Circle and some homes you have to go down the stairs. It's this guy living down the stairs, very nice guy. Yeah. He picked us up from the airport and stuff. Uh, Zed. And uh, but we had to leave our suitcases and we, like weeks, we just had to leave it there because we were you know, finding a place to live and so we didn't have a place mm -hmm. to keep carrying the suitcase. So months later, we came to pick up the suitcase. This was like the fifth suitcase, the fourth suitcase we kept the lie, you know, extra luggage we didn't. So go back like months later and I find my Phil Collins CD. Not even months, it's like eight or nine months, yeah. like a plenty of months later. So now when I was listening to it again, now it's time traveling back. It's so interesting, right? So when I was listening to Pakistan, I was imagining America, imagining yeah. living. I don't know why Phil Collins, but some reason that yeah. was for me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, Phil Collins, relaxed. Yeah, yeah. And, and then listening to him again, having lived in America for about nine to 10 months, I was thinking about my past self from a year and a half ago imagining going to America. Mm -hmm. So you're totally right. That exact same tune can trigger, can different, trigger the yeah, different future and the past. A future and yeah. the past. And very, within a very short period of time, about 14, 15 months we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. you know? And on a scientific level, that also makes perfect sense as well uh -huh. to go on a scientific, if you think about genes. Okay. 
So genes are um, the, the idea that our histories are trapped within our bodies mm. is the idea of genes, basically, is that genes trap the memories of your ancestors. Because think about your genetic, to use the idea of things that you might be genetically immune to now. Things sure. like the bubonic plague. Well, the reason that you're immune to the bubonic plague is because you're your ancestors and you carry the memory of their confrontation with the plague in you. That's what gives you immunity. Sickle cell anemia is very similar, right? Yeah, so sickle cell anemia is a great uh, example as well. The reason why um, a lot of African-American communities have sickle cell anemia is because it was actually developed um, to fight malaria became a genetic kind of mutation to help fight malaria. So they're carrying the memories of their ancestors fighting malaria. Malaria in Africa. Bodies, yeah. So that's a yeah. great example as well. Yeah, yeah. And so you can't tell your, well, right now, you can't tell your genes to forget, although mm -hmm. that's what we're trying to do right now with companies like CRISPR and stuff like that. Uh, we're trying to... Uh, things like sickle cell anemia. Hey, forget about all those. Uh, forget about malaria in Africa. You're no longer, or to help, help them imagine possible futures, to get them yeah. um, RNA, um, to get them things like that. RNA, which yeah. acts like the software. Yeah, yeah. DNA is like the hardware kind of yeah, idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, RNA is like software that's passed between parents and children. Mm -hmm. And then over time, uh, kind of manipulates, slowly mutates your DNA. Uh, we're trying to play with that, and uh, that. Uh, but anywho, from a scientific level, they're absolutely dead on that the memories of your ancestors are in fact trapped in your body. Now, where they disagree, something like Ethiopian Jews and scientists, is that the way to grapple with that, the way to influence it and impact it, is through emotion, is through movement, is through music. So elaborate. So the scientists would. Disregard the emotions. Yeah, would disregard emotion, would disregard music, would disregard art uh, as the primary mechanism to change or to access those memories, but instead would get down on a cellular level mm -hmm. and use like cellular manipulation. Yeah. So it would see the memories as literally, um, they call it encoding, they see them as encoded into your flesh. Yeah. So that's the difference there. I guess is, is they have, they're both, I think, looking at this idea of ancestor memory, but just from two different perspectives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that is the problem with science is like, um, one of the issues is we don't know a lot about RNA. It's, it's, uh, and we don't know DNA and RNA, how they really interact. Um, what role is music and mm -hmm. art playing and mm -hmm. emotion? These, these are all questions because yeah. scientifically we have no way to see emotion as of yet. Yep. We have the ability to like look at someone's brain and be like, Oh look, their frontal cortex is lighting up. Oh, isn't that interesting? But okay. Uh, tell me something else. Like still emotions are that which we don't have the instruments and controls maybe in the future yeah. we will be able mm -hmm. to, but as of the present moment, they're, they're mysterious. Right. They're otherworldly. They're the realm of the spirit as of this moment. Mm -hmm. Now that could change. Of course, psychology tries to also do this. Mm -hmm. It's another way of looking at 
a different approach to this because psychology is also engaging in these things with things like psychoanalysis, um, this notion of the unconscious. The idea is that you have this unconscious thing that's passed down between children and parents. A way of thinking about it is this term intergenerational trauma that psychology has come mm -hmm. up with. Mm -hmm. And that is that the brain has some somehow remembers this unconscious id or whatever they call it, but the unconscious mind um, can remember. Yeah. And that you have to access that unconscious mind to get to your ancestors. And so they do that through this process of question and answer or confession, which according to Foucault, um, psychoanalysis and psychological methods actually come from Catholicism and come from the priest confession, the act of confession between the laity and the priest and then psychology adapts it and secularizes it or makes it like see, anywho, that's yeah, yeah, the whole. Yeah. So it, in and of itself, it has a religious history, a religious past. It's just something that's important. So, but also with psychoanalysis, there's still the idea of, well, what role is emotion playing? That is still something that isn't answered as well. Yeah. That stuff is really interesting to me because I find it fascinating how psychology approaches emotions in a way that kind of further mystifies it because it tries to chart these connections with the ancestors. Mm -hmm. But as you, you read, without necessarily paying attention to ritual practices, instead it kind of goes into the biology and certain pathologies. Historically speaking, late 19th century, 20th century, the objective of tracing these emotional connections were to actually trace pathologies, trace mm -hmm. like infections of people, issues with you, like defective issues mm -hmm. that were traced down and uh, they did that through looking at emotion by paying attention to sexuality being a key study like women migrant women they were supposedly emotionally uncontrolled and lacked uh, ability to discipline their emotions and that spread across generation became a kind of a disease that had to be diagnosed mm -hmm. and prevented and through education one of the key sides i find all that stuff really interesting every day i wake up and i kind of think to myself like what new what clear how much clearer am i about it and Am I still pretty confused? Because this question of we cannot see emotions, how do we really understand it scientifically is something that is a very yeah. important question to figure out because I do think there is a science to emotion that is not just all subjective and uh, inner mm -hmm. and hidden, that there mm -hmm. really is like emotions are a thing mm -hmm. that can explain to us how we remember and how we time travel. However, the question is, is there a universal emotion that can be doctrinally? Well, that would be like, is there a notion of time? Because time presumes, yeah, yeah that there yeah. is a universal. Right. And I don't think there is. Yeah. that Then yeah. you would be with yeah, the order <laughs> <Yeah>. of time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this yeah, book, yeah. The Order of Time. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think, yeah. Because uh, this is another interesting point is that we've organized our society around linear frameworks of time because of yeah. colonialism, all that stuff. But it seems like it's um, unraveling around us as we speak. <laughs> it seems like on a global yeah. level that there's some sort of unraveling. Are there new notions of time coming into being? Mm -hmm. Why is that? And I think that's the result of digital technologies that who are unraveling our notion of time. As I've said before, the thing about digital technologies you have to remember is everything is in the past. 
okay? So what I mean by that is the code that's animating me on the screen right now has already been written. Yeah. My voice, me speaking, and you're hearing it, it's already been done. It's already happened. Everything you see on the screen is the past. But it comes at you as if it is the future. So digital technology inverts our perception of time and our understanding of time. And, and it offers this reversal, this loop. It's almost like a reversion loop. And I think that that is a lot of people are like, well, what's happening? What's going on? I think one of the underestimated things that we look at about what's happening right now in this day, like where we are <laughs> um, in futures past, uh, is that digital media is unraveling our ability to really stabilize ourselves in time. Because there's this great book called Keeping Together in Time that argues that actually the basis of humanity and human civilization was our ability to keep time together, to have a universal understanding of time, which we initially did from his perspective through dance. Dance was the original way we kept time. And then we moved on to more advanced, the notion of a clock, things like that. But according to him, when it, this is another problem, in the 21st century, we are having this issue now. We can't keep time together. It's becoming very difficult. We're all in different time zones. Uh, in addition to digital media, inverting everything. Think about this YouTube video. This YouTube video, even though we're making it um, in June in 2021, somebody may be watching it 10 to 20 years from now. And that's what you always have to think. I always say um, the ancients always made things not for themselves, but for future generations. They never made things for themselves. Uh, the artists always operated with the notion that this would be viewed 100 to 200 years from now, which I think is what everybody should think about with the internet. And we're learning the hard way sometimes that a tweet from 10 to 20 years ago will become most relevant 20 years later. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you can kind of like leave there. Yeah. Thailand has become this kind of global hub for UFOs and extraterrestrial activity, specifically this place, Kalkala. All right, so what is its historical significance first? Because this place actually has a lot of historical significance. So two things. A, it's the site of a prehistoric art piece. So there's a prehistoric cave painting that was unearthed there in 1981. All right, so why is the cave painting important? This cave painting isn't just any old cave painting. First of all, it's from the prehistoric period, and we have very few of those. So, of course, the rarity of it makes it very important. Also, what's important here is it's discovered really 1981. Usually, most of the cave paintings were discovered in the 1940s, mm -hmm. 1950s. So, this comes a little later. Mm -hmm. But when it is on Earth, what is on it is strange. So, in most of the prehistoric cave paintings, you get animals. The reason that you get animals in prehistoric cave paintings is because humans were not the top of the food chain in the prehistoric era. We were on the low end. We were food, uh, <laughs> which is like made apparent in the prehistoric cave paintings yeah. where we are not featured. Instead, it's all the animals because basically the earth belongs to the animals and humans are just really like spectators hoping that they don't get eaten. 
which of course they were eaten. And we see we see a lot of that in the cave paintings, actually. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of people being eaten or killed by animals. Mm -hmm. So we get a sense that we were not at the top of the food chain and we were just kind of fascinated by animals, our humility our, uh, and our modesty of it. So that's what's really important. So usually in most of the cave paintings, and they're around the globe. So this is one of the kind of unsolved mysteries in history is why, and we could do another, maybe this would be another good uh, podcast episode on, is why do prehistoric paintings all show up at the same time across the globe? Because they all show up around 10,000 BCE. Mm. It's about the date. They're in France, they're in India, they're in Thailand, they're in um, the Americas, they're all over. And they all show up around 10,000 BCE. So that's, and, and that's an unsolved mystery. There are hypotheses, but anywho, so you got that. So what's weird here in the Thailand prehistoric cave painting is there's no animals. Mm. There's no animals. The people are weird. Okay, so there's like people with like triangle heads. Everybody has like a triangle head, like all the heads are like, it's like people, but for some reason in this prehistoric painting, they have everyone's head like a triangle. So they're depicting aliens in these paintings then? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know. Mm. And in addition to the triangle heads, there's these weird like floating objects that mm. are like above in the prehistoric painting. Mm. In fact, um, in that movie Prometheus that Ridley Scott does, he kind of bases, there's a cave painting, a prehistoric cave painting in that, that movie. Mm -hmm. He bases it on the one in Thailand. Mm. So yeah, I don't know. That's the hypothesis. I mean, why, why put all these triangle heads? Where are all the animals? What are these weird floating things that are like in the air? They look like UFOs that are just like floating over the people. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so it's just a weird thing. Number two. So the reason why this is a significant site. So you got this prehistoric cave painting that's very weird. It doesn't fit all the patterns of other cave paintings. We can maybe go into more detail. Like you were kind of asking, is it extraterrestrials? I could give other possible possibilities as well. But number two is Buddhism. So there's a Buddhist relic at this site, an important Buddhist relic. Um, and it's a site where bodhisattvas, so those are people who are on their way to becoming enlightened beings, um, have gone. And many, many people have become bodhisattvas. So this is like a site of Buddhist pilgrimage. So it's an important site in Buddhism for bodhisattvaism, for becoming an enlightened being. Uh, it's basically in a beautiful area, a beautiful forest. Mm -hmm. So it's a forested area. It's beautiful. And yeah, so you got these two things going on. And then what essentially happens about the 20th century, after around 1940s, mm -hmm. it becomes a hotbed. Well, it becomes people start seeing things in the area after 1940s about hmm. really picks up in the 1980s, the 1980s people start seeing more and more sites. And really it's in the 1980s that Kaukala becomes, becomes known as the city of heaven. It's kind of heavenly city as they call it, or the city of heaven. And that's where it comes to take on this name. 
Um, and so the question is, what's going on? Why are all these UFOs coming in this area? Why are people saying that they're seeing UFOs in this area? It's interesting. There was a forest that was a site of pilgrimage, mm -hmm. considered to be a heavenly city as well. Oh, and yeah. And I have to go into some of the weird things that happen too with these UFO stories, because yeah. these are not like, I guess, I don't want to say normal UFO stories, but like these aren't just like people seeing things, but maybe we can get more into the specifics of the story because they line up Please with do. Zimbabwe in some way. All right. Do you want me to? Yeah, go into the story. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things too, we have to keep in mind. The reason why this place in Thailand, Kaukala, is so important for me and when I think about extraterrestrials is because the people that are seeing the extraterrestrials, or you might think, oh, you know, maybe some kooky people or something. No, these were all like working professionals. These are attorneys, doctors, university students. These are respected people in their community who have gone for hikes there, something like that, have gone on holiday or are hiking in this forest, who have said that they've seen this stuff. So all the accounts, for the most part, in the 1980s, these people coming forward are not, these, these are respected professional people. Right. Uh, so that's another strange thing. And in their accounts, it lines up with a little bit of Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe happens in 1994. We did a little video on that. Here, uh, they say a very similar thing to what the kids said in Zimbabwe in 1994. Some of the people who met actually said the same thing, that these extraterrestrials talk to them without talking to them. They talk to them like a mental telepathy, and they look a lot like humans, but they're not human. So the description is they look a lot like humans, but they're not quite human, which is the same description that the kids in Zimbabwe give. Um, and the kids in Zimbabwe also say mental telepathy. Mm -hmm. So everyone's story here is pretty much the same as well. It's this mental telepathy talking to them as if silently these thoughts are coming into their head. Some people who said that they walked through the forest or whatever have felt this energy. It's like an energy that they feel speaking to them, but they don't see anything around them. So a lot of the people who've had encounters haven't seen anything, but they felt something. And that's when they hear this thing like in their head, giving them thoughts or ideas. And very similar also to the Zimbabwe story, people say that the extraterrestrials, and, and again, there's thousands of people have gone to this area now and flooded to it, but only a few dozen or so people have actually come forward and, with these stories. Mm -hmm. uh, because the extraterrestrials basically are telling these people that they're afraid of what technology is doing. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Zimbabwe. And I guess it gets a little bit more dystopic in Thailand because they don't aren't just talking to them like, oh, we're scared about technology and what's doing to humanity. But they say that technology is going to wipe out basically, I think, about 70% of humanity. So there's a kind of an apocalyptic event. Uh, I think so. It's a nuclear, nuclear kind of Holocaust-like event, which actually um, was hypothesized to be 2022. So <laughs> kind of coming up in the 2020s. So about uh, this decade, that this is what makes it more interesting is back in the 1980s. I think 
Thailand, this air is becoming more important because in the original 1980s, this apocalyptic event is scheduled for the 2020s. And so we've gotten all this stuff with COVID recently and stuff. And so everyone's like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I think more people are suddenly interested in the area. But I think the exact date is like 2022 or about mm -hmm. the 2020s decade is when humanity is going to go through this great crisis mm -hmm. that's going to lead to uh, somewhere like 70, 60 percent of humanity not making it to 2030. Wow. Yeah. And so they... Uh, are trying, they're here on earth to try to like help as many people as they can survive this, that they don't want to get involved because it's not their world. <clears throat> it's not their planet, mm -hmm. but they want to ensure like the continuation of the species. Is the, which is actually, so it's similar to the Zimbabwe, but it gets a little bit more apocalyptic and dystopic. They also give more details, which the details are also freaky because a lot of the people in Thailand said they saw like capsules, like these extraterrestrials don't eat food. They eat like these capsules and also they fly in kind of these capsule-ish like vessels that kind of look like, you know, like a medicine, like a drug, a drug capsule mm -hmm. that look kind of like that. And what's freaky, and this is why Thailand, you know, Kalkala uh, has become very popular, is that the Pentagon recently released video that shows a UFO that looks exactly like a capsule. So it's like, it's like really freaky because they were saying this like 1980s and then boom, the Pentagon releases this video. So now everyone's like, oh my gosh, this place in Thailand, they've been saying that. Because their description didn't fit, because usually you think about like flying saucer and all mm -hmm. that, but they were like, no, this idea of a capsule. Mm. Yeah. So I don't know. That That's kind of, I can get more into but the story, but uh, there's a lot of controversy now because there's fears that this community is growing. Um, and recently the Thailand, the um, government, the government of Thailand seized the area from the growing community there and has now taken it over. So what, what, what started as just that, eh, whatever. And what's weird is like the government is treating this in a very hostile way, which, which is kind of strange. And from my view, because it's like, Hey, this could be good tourism. This could yeah. be like a fun tourism spot. You could get a lot of Americans, a lot of people from across the yeah, globe, yeah, yeah. make a lot of money put up a hotel, you know, and the government instead is like treating them like combatants, like enemy combatants kind of thing. I mean, if you think about it, like tourism industry does uh, require that notion of safety, I bet, right? I mean, places like Hawaii, Aloha, mentality, yeah. whether that's like Jamaica or simply, you know, islands uh -huh. and stuff, you know, you get the sense that like, they're touristic places, but at the same time, like, they're given this representation as a touristic place because they're considered to be safe and regulated and controlled. Whereas this particular example of the story mm -hmm. is too local, don't you think? Mm. It's far too local for the government to embrace it because mm. it doesn't have that sense of we are here and we're going to protect you, the tourist, you know? Mm. But oddly enough, touristic places are also on the outskirts of a country or nation like i think what pakistan right now is yeah. very heavy on tourism uh for one particular reason they want people to feel comfortable mm -hmm. 
<laughs> think mm-hmm. of Pakistan as a place where you don't get blown off. Congress, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the way, you know, there's a, there's this real emphasis on come to Pakistan. You know, but yeah. At the same time, it can only happen from a perspective of we have everything in control. Come mm-hmm. to Pakistan because we have army soldiers left and right will protect you mm-hmm. from the threats that you might face, right? Mm. Because the threat is spontaneous, the threat is local. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the key reasons perhaps why the government freaked out because these stories are too local. They are probably imagining all kinds of weird things that might happen to a tourist, you know, which are probably like... But what would happen to a tourist? Nothing, maybe, but like... Yeah, nothing. I mean, like, I can't think about that's my that. thing. It's just like a yeah. little forest with just like some alien stories, like... What's the? But what's, how do you control that story as a government? You know, this is something they don't have control over what's happening. Yeah, but why would they? I mean, so what? It's like stories of bodhisattvas. Like, yeah, I would. I mean, why are you viewing these people as a hostile force, unless you view them as a potential threat? Yeah. To your power. Sure. And the yeah. question is, why would you view them as a threat to your power? Like, if if like I mean. I, indicates that government's Thailand is taking them seriously. Yeah. And the question is like, what is it that's compelling them to take these people seriously? Like, yeah. how come you were totally fine with it in the 1980s and now suddenly you're like, oh, we're going to seize this area. We are now yeah. going to be in control of this. Yeah, They're still allowed to go to the area and things, but now there's a military, well, there's a government presence. There's like yeah. a police force there monitoring the area. It's just like, ridiculous if you think about it it's like what are they monitoring stories of aliens like how do you yeah. know what is, what is police supposed to do in that like scenario? what's going on there yeah 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 that's my but thing it makes sense to me as well it's so nonsensical but it makes sense right there's that sense of you know god this place it's uncontrollable mm-hmm. and yeah they see these aliens as political foes yeah because this is what got me thinking because what's weird is president obama did this interview and in the interview they don't even ask him about ufos all right so this interview like i think it was three days ago three or four days ago mm-hmm. they even ask him about ufos and then president obama just kind of goes like he just starts talking about ufos in the interview and it's like wait what <laughs> and then he brings up ufos and he's like they will be the greatest threat to american uh like sovereignty over the next two decades like wait what wait what <laughs> wait, 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 wait. okay slow down uh yeah you gotta so if you get a chance look up that interview that he recently gave and he says ufos will be the greatest threat um and will he also says will create new religious movements that will be global and will be powerful and become really powerful religions and this is why we need to boost military spending uh and it was weird it was just like wait i mean like how how do you jump from i mean this like people are like oh well they're just using it to increase military spending that doesn't make sense to me because it's like give them a real threat like how do you go from like ufos to like we need to boost military spending Mm -hmm. like I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Even people with the interview were making fun of President Obama. Like, what, you know? And, but he was treating it very seriously. Sure, sure. And, um, you know, with this Pentagon report coming out, it's like, what's going on? Like, why are all of a sudden governments starting to treat UFOs and extraterrestrials from being a joke to being something that requires government surveillance and regulation? And 
why all of a sudden are we calling it the greatest threat to American sovereignty in like two decades? Because another thing that maybe I, I should talk about in the story is that in the stories of what they hear from this extraterrestrial civilization is that there is an interplanetary kind of governing body out there that is monitoring the situation and is not happy with what's going on in this planet <laughs> right now. This sort of reminds me of the covenant. Oh, yeah, yeah. And as the purity, we're supposed to follow a part of the covenant. Otherwise, God will uh, well, show his wrath upon the people. It's very similar. It lines up with like the Elohim, the uh, also yeah. the biblical covenant right, right, given right. Um, in the Old Testament to the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, yeah. um, that God comes out and is like, I'm not happy with what's going on. Yeah. Uh, you guys need to get yourself in order. Otherwise, I'm going to like end this. <laughs> you know, like, disasters back then were how you would uh, discern God's communication right. to you. Yeah, here it's technology. Mm -hmm. Like we are the cause of our own disaster. Say more. So like there's that warnings about technology's bad effects that these aliens are conveying yeah there's a paradox there too yeah because, because they are technologically advanced right, 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 right. you know same more but yeah so they are technologically advanced civilization yet here they are being like technology it's evil um watch out like you guys don't know what you're doing like this is really so there's like on the one hand there's a reverence and respect for technology in that it's created this otherworldly mm -hmm. extraterrestrial civilization. Mm -hmm. Yet on the other hand, there's a fear, uh, almost like a paranoia or um, sense of growing fear over what technology is turning us into. And is it turning us into monsters that we don't even recognize our own humanity anymore? Uh, to use, sorry, Billie Eilish, the singer, she always sings songs about that about how digital media has turned her into something that she doesn't even recognize. Yeah. Uh, and so this, this paradox, I think, comes out here. And it doesn't make the government look good. I think this is where, there, there's a couple of t challenges I hear, I think here, that really ufology is a greater challenge in some ways to, than even like, you know, Islam and um, other forms of religion that have challenged government authority or government power. Mm -hmm. Because in this case, A, you have this positing that there is a greater power mm -hmm. outside of the government and the state. And that power is not only more moral, more morally righteous than this government, this state, this human government, but also it's one that's more technologically sophisticated. You see, because our governments maintain power today, not over being, in the past, governments used to maintain power by saying we're the best morally. This is why politicians had to be morally righteous, had to be morally upright, mm -hmm. because their power over you was maintained over the fact that you were moral, right? Now today, a politician can sleep around he can do whatever he wants, he or she, uh, for the most part. They don't have to be moral. They can lie to you. They can outright lie to you. Those lies can come out to you. And it doesn't matter anymore because the government doesn't maintain their power through their morality. They are no longer moral authorities, and they understand that. 
So the question is then, how do they maintain their power over us? They maintain their power over us by the assumption that they are more te technologically knowledgeable and sophisticated than us. That their technologies such as drones, their digital technologies, their understanding of digital media, yeah. that they can protect us also mm -hmm. from other people's technologies, mm -hmm. yeah. such as hackers, things yeah. like that, nuclear weapons. You need the government to protect you from hackers, right? Although now we're starting to see <laughs> that is the government as technologically advanced and sophisticated as they claim to be. Do they even need a hacker to refuse that? Yes. Are the systems themselves that <laughs> they've created. I remember yeah, at the start yeah. of the pandemic, um, I had friends who lost their job and uh, they were trying to apply for unemployment and the system just crashed. Yeah. Their, uh, you know, the website just went down. Yeah. It was, and I guess it came out that the website used like, um, oh, and, and this came out too. Um, so the, the website that they were using the government was like this outdated like 1990s yeah. program. But the White House itself, do you know what they use to um, create the White House website? They use WordPress. <laughs> <laughs> the White House doesn't even create its own website. They have to use like a web host. <laughs> well, you know, it really fascinates me that uh, governments have this arrogance to assume that they have control over or knowledgeable of technology because, I mean, it's a pretty well-known commonplace, like, critique that governments are laborious, they're outdated, they're slow, they're inefficient, mm -hmm. tend to always be mocked for being technologically outdated mm -hmm. across, like, other parts of the world, at least, mm -hmm. you know, like in Pakistan, mm -hmm. people know, like, yeah, the government cannot hold an election, like, even the most democratically optimistic folks would say yeah I mean, there's gonna be some rigging yeah <laughs> you, know? you know, of course like there's like nobody You're rigging is, a little bit nobody is aspiring uh, for a hundred percent you know right accuracy so, because they have a sense government is not that more technologically advanced nevertheless on the other hand there's a sense there's this technocratic government coming in you know a lot of like countries will say this new regime will be more technocratic than the previous one yeah more like efficient that. Yes, that kind, More efficient. Of, that kind of mentality is also very And nice. efficiency yeah. equals profitability yes, equals yes, economic yes. power. Right. So mm -hmm. a lot of the critiques of prior political leaders for being corrupt, it's not really coming from a kind of just a purely populist perspective. It's coming from yeah. this, we need a technocrat who knows how to run country efficiently. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And this starts um, in America. I'm not sure about Pakistan, mm -hmm. but this starts all the way with FDR. For sure. FDR For sure. imagines the government as a sophisticated and advanced machine mm -hmm. and sees himself as an engineer, not right. as a politician. Um, and he really creates that idea and wants to create a te technocracy or techocracy yeah. or whatever they call it. Um, and he brings in a bunch of engineers and things like that to rethink and reformulate government mm -hmm. a, as an engineering project, which is why we have things like Social Security, yeah. which transforms all the messiness of your ethnic identity, your race, your sex, your gender, yeah. your name into a nine-digit nine number. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the idea. Of computation turns it into mathematics which is like seen as perfect so it really starts with FDR but it really comes to ferment I think in the 2000s and this is why I also think ufology uh, and UFOs are becoming so potent now because um, 
in 2000s, it's like the moral authority, digital media. I mean, it's not just the result of the mistakes by the government. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, not to let the government off the hook here. They've made plenty of mistakes. <laughs> but I think, uh, and they've made plenty of mistakes in the past. So what's different here? I think it's digital media. Yeah. The digital technologies themselves, with the, which our government have tried to embrace, which have made the United States, I mean, the global hub power that we are, I think we would have fallen a long time ago, if it wasn't for digital technologies. But they have also simultaneously ensured our doom in some ways, because there's no authority, there's no systems of authority to mm-hmm. monitor them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can go on Twitter and go, you know, tell the Pope to F off, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I could do it if I wanted to. There's no authority out there. It's yeah. just followers, it's just influence. Yeah. And anyone can grow followers. That was, that's why they took, you know, a president of the United States off of social media. I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, Anyone, I mean, it's just whoever has the most followers on social media could be the next president. Uh, it, it doesn't have anything to do with, oh, well, you went to this law school or you went to that college or you served under that guy. You know, it's you don't have to be moral anymore. In fact, being morally righteous will work against you most yeah. of the time. Yeah. Uh, you actually, you know, if you're too squeaky clean, people start to suspect something about you. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. it's always been like a reversal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can't blame, and that's where I think ufology becomes very, very is surging in popularity for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it recognizes that idea that the government is out of control by digital technologies that have rendered it obsolete. Do we need a state in the era of blockchain? I don't know. And these extraterrestrials are telling people that, no, your government doesn't know what it's doing. And moreover, it's leading y'all to your doom. Uh, And it really speaks to people in a way that any other previous religion doesn't in that way. Like here you have otherworldly beings saying, if you continue to follow these people, they will lead you to your doom. I find it so fascinating. 1840s, you have these uh, like millenarianism, Adventist movement, you got people like making calculations that God will, mm-hmm. Jesus will return on May the 14th, etc. right? Mm-hmm. And um, now to think about it in comparison with this current moment, it's, there was the advent of new technology of the railroad back then, yeah. which was making the country expand westward mm-hmm. and at the same time, perhaps take away powers from certain concentrated regions of the eastern coast, right? So you had that sense, like, you do not know where to go. I mean, you've got yeah. a guy by the name of Joseph Smith. Sure, he's a Mormon founding, all that. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be a theocratic uh, leader of the United States. I mean, the guy had yeah, visions yeah. that were pretty daunting. I mean, you don't have somebody today saying, like, I'm going to break the occupancy in America. <laughs> like, oh, you know? Yeah. But that tells you there's a certain, like, sense that the government is unraveling. It's weakening. Yeah. So I mean, what I find so interesting is these technologies make governmental powers obsolete while simultaneously in response to these kinds of threats that they pose, you have the governments becoming more entrenched as well, becoming more caught up with regulating, controlling, and it is back and forth is I think what's something that's happening with UFOs, right? Like yeah. that they're giving us this, they're, they're uh, warning us about 
how we are using digital technologies in a negative way. Yeah. And it resonates with us because we feel that. Yeah, because we feel it's palpable. Yeah. yeah. It's palpable. And what it's done to Thailand. I mean, yeah, how it's unraveled society in, in ways, our relationships, it's fractured our relationships. Just the same way that the railroad was doing back oh, in the mid-19th century, was this, unraveling familiar relationships. And, yeah, and another important thing about these stories with the extraterrestrials and Kaukala is that they are concerned about how stressed out humans are. That's another uh, thing. Yeah. So these yeah. are pretty chilled out aliens. Yes, they are, in fact. <laughs> no, they are. They are. That's what they talk about. Yeah, yeah, that they're yeah. calm, that they're so calm. Yeah. And they they have a calmness about them. Sure, yeah. That, that this comes out. Yeah. And that is potentially why the governments are so deadly scared of these folks. Yeah, because they want you afraid and paranoid so that you're dependent on the government. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to... Nothing scarier than a nah, chill out person nah. at times of well, duress. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if the government defines its power over you by, we're going to protect you, well, right. of course, you need to be afraid, afraid and paranoid. Need for protection. Exactly, exactly. You must feel unsafe. Right, right. If you feel safe, protection. you yeah, don't yeah. need someone's protection. So, but the government is no longer a source of moral authority. They know that. So they can't do that. So then, you know, they have to keep us in a heightened state of fear and paranoia. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> 2022 is the date when uh, things start to pick up, uh, according to this in Kalkala. We have a story that Amanda will share with us. Yeah, I was thinking about telling some, getting some UFO encounter stories and talking about some ghost stories maybe tomorrow. What do you think? Doing some ghost stories tomorrow? Some good ghost stories? <clears throat> uh, okay, yeah, we could talk about the mumblers. We could talk about spirit photography, maybe tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> All right, so I was thinking about going into more detail with these stories. All right, so one of the oddest stories out there about alien encounter, the one that kind of, like, what keeps me up at night, or, like, you know, the story that where you're kind of like, all right, what's going on here? Um you know, that one story that really sticks with you, it's this story. The story of what happened in Zimbabwe in 1994. So do you know about it a little bit? Or? Okay. <laughs> so it's a pretty cool story. Uh, basically what happens in 1994, it's kids, they're going for the day. Um, so I think it's 62, it happens to 62 children. They go to school for the day. They're walking and they go, Middle of the day, so they see this UFO. So this is an UFO encounter too that happens in the middle of the day, hmm. which makes it more realistic too, because it's not like it's following a pattern. It's it's something something strange is happening here. Right. And sixty-two children report seeing a UFO. Not just a UFO, but they encounter the extraterrestrials. Inside the school or outside? Outside the school. the school. So it came, they saw it from like the school. I guess they saw it coming down from the school and then they went out to see it. Okay. And then they encountered the extraterrestrials. Okay. Well, we can talk about one of the things, this is where it gets into like controversy and things like that because the extraterrestrials like talked to them without talking to them. Yeah. It kind of looked like them, but yeah. we're not that. 
but looked human-ish, yeah. but just kind of off a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And they talked to them without talking to them. So it was like kind of like a mental telepathy yeah. is what they reported. Yeah. And what's odd is every, so basically nobody believed them, of course, in Zimbabwe when this happened. Nobody believed them. This is 62. All right. So very quickly, journalists get to the scene. um, Filmmakers get to the scene. Like, you know, the media comes like 62 children um, in the middle of Zimbabwe. See this extraterrestrial. What's going on? Everybody wants to know. So separate out the children, all 62. And they have them tell them exactly what happened. Draw out a picture. Tell me what happened. All 62 children say the same thing. About the same thing. There's no, there's very little variation between all 62 accounts. And we have these accounts to this day. Um, If you click and you can go on Google and maybe kind of learn more about it a little bit, but we have their accounts. We have their drawings. It's all the same. All 62. They all report the extraterrestrial, um, the aliens. Again, they all kind of said they kind of looked human like. Mm-hmm. They looked like humans, but they didn't speak to them. Yeah. They, they use this kind of like mental telepathy with them right. to tell them. And the message that they told them is also they had the same message as all 62. Mm-hmm. And that was they're worried about technology. The extraterrestrials said that we're worried about what technology is doing to this planet, doing to the people, and that technology is going to destroy you guys if you don't get your act together. How did the UFO say that? Well, no, the extraterrestrials said it. How did he say it? Through mental telepathy. They didn't speak. So all the children said that they did not speak. They looked like humans, but they were not, like I said, yeah. so like kind of humanoid and, but they didn't speak. So it was all mental telepathy. So their communication, they didn't actually speak this out, but all the children heard okay. this, like in their head. Yeah. So it was like, they were speaking to them in their head. Yeah. We would say it would be like psychosis. Yeah. And that's what the what was dismissed as, as these mass. So if you go online, there's this um, academic article, very early on, academics dismiss it as a case of mass hysteria. Yeah. So originally what it happens, even though the kids, all 62, have the same account, basically draw the same pictures, say the same thing, they communicated through mental telepathy, said this thing about technology, said they're worried about technology and what it's doing to humanity, doing to the earth. And they're watching, they're monitoring us, they're trying to help us. So according to the children, but, you know, it was not, they're not here for like mean purposes, but they're just worried and trying to guide us um, with technology. But academics very early on dismiss it, say it's a case of mass hysteria. Because from academics perspective, basically in Africa during this time, you have civil war. Of course, Zimbabwe is going through this inflationary period, has just gone through conflict. And so academics dismiss this event as merely a case of mass hysteria. Hmm. And there was a couple of other cases. But what's weird, of course, that these academic articles that dismiss it as a case of mass hysteria don't talk about is how the hell does all 62 children get the story pretty much the same? Moreover, what's very strange Today, those children are, of course, adults, mm-hmm. and they stick by their story as adults. Like, they have nothing at stake in this. 
they don't have to stick by the story, but they're like, this happened. Like uh, now it's been how many years now? Over 20 years. And those, yeah. those kids have not changed their story. Wow. Yeah. So it's this kind of like case of, I think there's a lot going on here. Yeah. A lot. Because the question is, why go to Zimbabwe? Yeah. So I'm not dismissing like, but I'm like, why go to Zimbabwe? Why land? Like, okay, why would you encounter someone? I, I have answers, of course, I think, based on my theory. Yeah. Um, because I, I think that these kids, from my perspective, as I know people are like, but I think they're telling, i definitely telling the truth. I mean, this is like all 62, all the same accounts. They all record mm-hmm. the same kind of thing. Because this is the story um, where you talk about what kind of stories change, changed your perspectives about like extraterrestrials and stuff. This is one of these stories definitely did. And also I had an encounter with a student when I was in graduate school who was in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And he was a, um, a pilot. And he told me about some experiences and this guy was just like, you know, he's, he, he, it like the way he told these stories to me. And then he said, oh yeah, this happens to pilots all the time. And I was like, what? Pilots have these weird things. He's like, oh yeah. And then I started going to talk to pilots and it's true, especially these air force guys who are up in the air a lot, but basically pilots know that if they say anything, like if, if they say like, Hey, you know, like flight control, I saw, you know, they're going to get like, okay, you need to go for a psych eval. Um, so they keep it to themselves. But yeah, so that, that kind of changed me, the student, having a student who had something, you know, being in the Air Force and having these experiences and revealing them to me. But also another thing was this story. So what are the shared experiences of Zimbabwean children that... That's it. ...allowed for this very... Same accounts, just like the pilots have same accounts. Yeah, that's what's strange too. The pilots very similar. So that's another thing that gets me going. It's like the accounts are all the same. I mean, it's very similar, right? Object flying in kind of a strange, erratic mm-hmm. way, which of course would be non-manned aerial. We don't we don't have the capacity to fly in such erratic movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think that, because this is the question, why go to the middle of Zimbabwe? Okay, if you're an extraterrestrial civilization or something, and you're really interested in helping humanity, mm-hmm. why would you go to children in Zimbabwe? Yeah. What, are you, what do you think? You tell me what you think, and then I can tell you what I think. Because I think it actually makes a lot of sense. If I was an extraterrestrial civilization, I would go to children in Zimbabwe way before I would go to politicians or anyone, anyone who has like, uh, knows the nuclear codes, you know what I mean? More receptive to critiques of technology. Okay. Yeah. Especially in Zimbabwe where you've just seen war. You've just seen technologies nearly destroy your society because Zimbabwe is coming out of a very horrible conflict Uh and inflation. And it's still, and Zimbabwe never comes out of that. I mean, it's still struggling with that. Maybe they're learning how to use technology in school that is counterproductive to, mm-hmm. that is preparing them for warlike scenarios. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe schools are training grounds for using technology at the detriment of yeah. the cost of, you know, violence. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's where you're learning to do the technologies and, and have some of the violence. Yeah. 
Yeah, that could be. I mean, I think, yeah, you're right. I think children's minds are more receptive. They're like, you know, like you're open-minded as a kid. And actually children would, like, I think an adult, we've been so, so this, this kind of comes into the four. Um, so if you use the example, people like to use the example of like Captain Cook. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't know about Captain Cook, so when he goes down into basically, uh, you know, modern day Australia, New Zealand, all that stuff, he records his accounts that when he comes down to the islands, he's coming with his big boat, all of his men, and he gets into Australia, modern day Australia, modern day New Zealand, that kind of area, uh, that they did see indigenous peoples, but they didn't see him. So his boat's coming in, they dock the boat, they come into Australia, there's people, all there's indigenous people, they've encountered them, they're, they're like, hello, you know, and they can't see them. He says that they cannot, they, they, it was as if they didn't exist. They thought they were dead. At first there were stories. This becomes actually the beginning of like Pirates of the Caribbean, the idea of like that, that dead, the sailor ship of like dead people or whatever. They thought they had died at sea and that they were ghosts. <laughs> That's initially what I think uh, Captain Cook initially thought. Um, but then it was only when, I think, I forget how it happened, but um, basically one of the indigenous priests, indigenous healer was able to see them and then alerted them. And as soon as they did that, then all of a sudden they were able to see them. Because, so it makes sense. So this is an idea, part of like psychology. Um, the idea is that if the, if an idea literally doesn't exist in your head, you can't see it. So if you don't have the idea of like <laughs> these huge boats with like Captain Cook and his men coming in to this, if, it, if conceptually it doesn't exist in your head, yeah. you won't see it. And it's only people who have, who we might dismiss as insane, crazy, right? Who have the imaginative potential to imagine things that no one else can, mm -hmm. who are more likely to see such things. And of course, who have such imaginations? Children. So children are more adept and equipped to see things that we can't as adults. And this is scientific. I mean, this is basic idea of neuroscience. Yeah, or you can hear about the infamous experiment of the, um, what that guy, I forget the name of the experiment, where they're dribbling the basketball they oh, tell yeah. them to count the number of dribbles of the ball. Uh, these people looking at the camera are supposed to count the number of dribbles on the ball. So they're like, one, two. And then all of a sudden, this guy in this gorilla suit walks yeah, through. Saw yeah, and then they're like, how many times did the ball hit the floor? And they're like, oh, 12. And then they're like, oh, did you see the guy walking by in the gorilla suit? And they're like, what guy? <laughs> the gorilla suit. But anywho, you know, point B, yeah. that if you're not, and children are. Yeah. So yeah, I think that idea, number one, they're more imaginative. They have the capability to, to literally see something that we couldn't see as adults. Yeah. Because that's another thing people always say, well, we would know if extraterrestrials were here. Well, no, we wouldn't. Um, they would just have to be like a different color or just yeah. be out of our expectations of what they would be. Yeah. And they could just be walking around freely. Mm -hmm. We would have, we would be clueless because the idea does not exist in our head. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, there's a good show too on HBO that looks at this um, called Westworld. And so the idea is not put into basically the robot's head to see the humans and stuff. So they literally cannot see it. They can't see the humans. I like the movie Totoro. Oh, Totoro. <laughs> the kid can see a lot of different things. Yeah, the kid can see a lot. Totoro's a good, yeah, they have an enchanted world. Yeah. Yeah, that we come to lose. So that, yeah. I think, number one. Yeah. Why, if I was an extraterrestrial society and hit children, yeah. I, I'd go, you know, I would stay away from adults. Yeah. <laughs> I would stay the hell away. Um, or I would take adults on one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. I wouldn't want to take them on as a group mm -hmm. just because then you get all. And like I said, I wouldn't go to politicians. Anyone who has like the nuclear codes, <laughs> I would stay away from. Because I know that they would react with fear. This is another thing. Children, when they see things that defy their expectations, they actually aren't afraid per se. Yeah. They're more willing to kind of explore their worlds in a way where we're adults. We get more afraid actually. So adults are more afraid actually about spontaneity. Like children love spontaneity. If you're like, let's go get ice cream in the middle of the day, they're like, yeah, you know. But an adult's like, no, I got to do this, and then I got to do that, yeah, and then yeah, I got, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So kids can deal with that stuff. They're yeah. equipped emotionally, mentally, physically for all that. Yeah. So yeah, that's to me. I'm like, oh yeah, of course aliens would go to children. Mm -hmm. Well, why children in Zimbabwe? Why not children in like, I don't know, like here, like in in America and the states. Yeah. Why go to Zimbabwe? Why would yeah. you go there? I mean, do you have a... No. Why Zimbabwe? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, well, I think Africa would be the perfect place to go. Because, yeah, like, I, I, I'm saying, um, A, I mean, it, it's hard to know what what they know. Like, uh, extraterrestrial society, are they able to see things that we can about mm -hmm. past, futures, and present? Mm -hmm. Can they see our future? Are they, because the problem with um, us is that <laughs> we only have our past. So what do I mean by that? So the present is very fleeting, fluid, dynamic. The present's always, yeah, I mean, well, it, yeah, yeah. The present <gasps> becomes known only once it becomes past. Yeah. Sorry, that's our dog barking. <laughs> um, and the future is unknown. We don't know the future, so it doesn't exist for us. No. So the present doesn't exist, and the future doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So there's another important point. If I was an alien civilization, I would know that. If I was like an advanced, technologically sophisticated civilization, I would see humanity and be like, you know what? They only know their past. So if I'm going to meet them or greet them, I will do so in their past. Mm -hmm. I will encounter them in history. I don't know if that makes sense to y'all. How do you encounter someone in their past? That's that's the question, right? How would you encounter someone in their past? Because I think what's happening here is if you're an extraterrestrial society, you know that the encounter in 1994 isn't going to be the important moment. That actually won't be the encounter. The encounter will be 20, 30, 40 years later, someone reading that account. Someone watching a film about that account. That's the actual encounter. You see what I'm saying? Or did you want to? Yeah, yeah. No, keep going. Yeah, sense. right? Like, because you would know. It's not live. It's not live. You can't do it live. Because you know that they're present. You know, it's just like things going through with the pandemic. 
Um, you know, we wanted certainty of like knowing what the virus was going to do and all that. At the end of the day, we learned experts can't. Nobody can know the present. Nobody can know the future. No one. No matter how intelligent you are. No one. The only thing someone can do, and that's, you know, us as PhDs here, like, you know, I will say the only thing as a PhD I can do is know the past. I'm real good at doing that. I can make educated guesses about the future based on the past, but not, I mean, it's an educated guess at best. So yeah, I mean, if I was an alien civilization, I would embed myself into these key moments with key people that were not political elites, that were not important people. I would also not want to be filmed or anything like that because then that would take, the problem with film is it would take, it would make the present more, more static. It would make it, um, you would have less control over it, over the encounter. And what I mean by that is like, all right, so if you film something, like for example on Twitter or like social media, you take something and it's filmed, then it takes on a life of its own. Yeah. But if it was like a, an account by someone, it seems to be like people are just like, ah, whatever, you know, and like, but there's more control in that because, you know, you control the narrative. Mm -hmm. When there's a video or something like that, then the narrative gets out of control. Yeah. You've lost control over it. This is part of the problem with photography and part of the problem with video. Um, we assume that it's video is transparent. This, and this is my other issue with like extraterrestrials and aliens that people have is like, well, I can't see it on video, so it doesn't exist. As if the video is some sort of, um, like our cameras on our phones are some sort of like crystal ball that just yields <laughs> truth. <Yeah. laughs> like, you know, like if it's not on my, if my camera can't catch it. I mean, our cameras can only get, I mean, like seven different colors. I mean, <laughs> we can't even like, someone would just have to be a different color outside of our color spectrum. Yeah. And I mean, right, we only can see in seven colors and our technologies are programmed only to see seven colors. So if you're an extraterrestrial society, you just be another color. Yeah. They couldn't see you and neither could your, uh, their cameras and their technologies. I mean, it's pretty simple. So this whole idea of like the blurry video, I'm like, that's stupid to me because I'm like, well, fine. It's a different color that we can't see and neither can our cameras. We don't have a camera that can see outside of our color spectrum because we don't know what other colors exist because we can't see them. I mean, we can assume there's other colors besides seven. And we know that like insects, for example, can see something like 26 or something like that. And animals can see more, but yeah. So anywho, that, that to me gets in the, but also there's the ability that you can't control the narrative in the same way that you could through these eyewitness accounts. And it's also softer. Like if I was gonna um, come and encounter someone, I would do it slowly so that it wouldn't be shocking. Mm -hmm. I would do little pinpricks, like, t -t 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 you know, just kind of little here, little there. Little t -t -t -t. It would be like, um, it wouldn't be, we assume that like an alien encounter would be like, boom, you know, like, oh my God, they're here, they're, right. there's extraterrestrials. No, I think it, it's gonna be like so tiny, little tiny, like, events that over time in the scope of like 100 200 years yeah become like oh yeah extraterrestrials yeah <laughs> you know like mm -hmm. yeah i knew it like you know like but not like a big it won't be a big event it won't be like nobody will it won't be aired nobody's gonna be like 
on this date, this is when we knew or something like that. That's what I would do. Because if you know a little bit about humanity, I think we've learned a lot about humanity in the past year. They cannot handle <laughs> anything. Like, like they can't handle anything out of the ordinary, yeah. anything unexpected. So if you're like an extraterrestrial society who is advanced, you would know this about us. Yeah. And you'd be like, listen, these people, they couldn't handle if we just like come down and are like, hey, what's going on? Long time no see, right? They're going to flip out and then someone's going to try to nuke us. I mean, you know, so if I was them, I would kind of plan it out over a period of like 100, 200, maybe even more years um, and wait for that. And then it just becomes apparent. It's just like, oh, yeah, of course. And I would actually do that. I would go on a global scale because this is another thing about alien encounters, UFOs that make me believe more so is that it's global. If it was just like Zimbabwe or something like that, but of course there's been UFO sightings in Thailand, Russia, China, Europe, India, Pakistan, um, America, Australia, Africa. I mean, it's everywhere. That's also something that makes me believe it more because also what I would want to do is I'd want to go global. I want to do it across the globe. I wouldn't want any one society having that knowledge. And that's another thing why I wouldn't want to be filmed because I wouldn't want to give someone knowledge over someone else. I would want it to be like real soft. And I would also want to give my knowledge out to a bunch of nobodies. Nobodies who might become somebodies one day, but nonetheless, children, people who wouldn't be believed. Yeah. Is that kind of, mm -hmm. so then it would soften it. Like if I go to the president of the, I wouldn't go to the president of the United States, of course, mm -hmm. or anything like that. I would want to go to a bunch of nobodies in different countries and just kind of real soft, just kind of, so nobody knows I'm walking in until by the time they do, it's like no big deal. And they don't freak out and they don't nuke us. They're just like, all right. It's similar to prophecy. Yeah. I'll tell you, say more. Sorry. Well, talking prophets a lot. tend to evangelize, spread the message to commoners. Ooh, good point. They tend to say things incrementally rather than give all the revelations out in That's one good. moment. Like, like uh, Gabriel yeah. to uh, the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah. So mundane. Yeah. Al-Hira is just sitting there. And, and he was a nobody. Yeah, he was a nobody. He was a nobody. Yeah, that gets you thinking too. Yeah, I get all that stuff because I'm like, oh my gosh, just Gabriel, all that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, that's very true. Yeah, I go to nobody's. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I would reveal it over, yeah, that's very similar to the Prophet Muhammad, how he gets the revelation over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And when he does get the revelation, it's, it's in a cave and he's a nobody, mm -hmm. which makes it more believable. You know, if some, you know, rich, powerful guy's like, I saw that you're like, ah, that's bullshit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't believe you. <laughs> I'm yeah. less likely to believe it. But if a child said, you know, a group of children in Africa, I'm like, what's at stake for that? I mean, there's nothing at stake in this besides shame. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were shamed. They were shamed by their society and they were shamed by academics. I'm an academic. They were shamed and said that they had mass hysteria. I mean, there's nothing at stake really for them. They were not believed. This did not make major news. I mean, yeah. it made news later, years down the line, mm -hmm. as the children stuck with their stories. Yeah. But nobody was like, 
yeah, this is, I didn't see it on the news in 1994. <laughs> like, yeah. maybe local news here or there. And again, that's another thing with UFOs. They'll make like local news or something like that, but very rarely do they make global news. Of course they are now. And that's to me, maybe we can talk more about too. But yeah, I think just finishing up on this, because mm -hmm. yeah, we've been talking a little bit about the Pentagon report and what's going on. Because I just saw President Obama today said, probably definitely extraterrestrials. He's a believer in aliens. Um, but he's also afraid because he says that they are going to create a new religion, mm. extraterrestrials, a new global powerful religion. And from President Obama's angle, one that would threaten and jeopardize the power of the state, which I'm like, are you reading Diana Wash Pasuka? <laughs> I'm like, because she makes that kind of, she makes that argument that uh, ufology or the belief in UFOs is going to become as powerful as Christianity mm -hmm. was, early Christianity, and become a real challenger to mm -hmm. state power, like in a real way. Um, and then said, you know, this is why we need maybe weapons. It's actually not for the extraterrestrials, but for the believers. Yeah. So it's interesting, it's like President Obama's kind of picking up on this. There's tension there mm -hmm. between those who believe that there's a higher power outside of the government. Because ultimately, if you believe in extraterrestrials, you're saying that there's a higher power outside the government. And what's interesting is President Obama maybe shouldn't have said this, but he did. He kind of revealed that, that like this is a real danger and the government needs to look into this and get ahead of the narrative. I also find it interesting that belief in the extraterrestrial becomes more palpable and almost has much more at stake or more grandiose, even though it's incremental and stuff, but nevertheless, yeah. it becomes more of a encounter at times when society seems to be least enchanted and most repressive. And, you know, mm. so like, you know, why do prophets, yeah. why is Gabriel speaking to the prophet in that particular milieu of seventh century Arabia? Why are these Zimbabwean kids receiving mm -hmm. in 1994? In 1994, why are the Americans why are Americans so much more receptive to UFOs today than they were, they were let's say, 20, 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, yes, or so, 10 years ago. Exactly. Shoot. I mean, exactly. So there's five this, years ago. I mean, this is like so the more, really going quick here. Yeah. The more, uh, the, the, the less they're invested in their politics, mm -hmm. the more they're receptive to encountering or talking about encounters they've had. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a good point, too, because, you know, if you, as the state unravels or as this power unravels, yeah, or does that make it you're more willing to yeah. think outside of yeah. your state? Because as it's unraveling, it's also becoming more coercive and more repressive. Mm, the state, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So as the state unravels, it'll become more oppressive. Yeah. And so you see, you seek uh, voices and figures from another world. Yeah. as this world becomes right and i think that that's real like i don't even think that those are fake psychology yeah. by the way because like i think what you're saying here i just want to say too is you're not dismissing this as like oh well you'll hear voices or you're seeing no it's like these are real things happening yeah so real experiences but it's only once the state's power over you starts to unravel mm -hmm. do you open yourself up to the experiences of something outside of the state right yeah. Yeah, is that yeah. kind of what you're saying yeah Mm -hmm. exactly, yeah, because mm -hmm. yeah, psychology might have the tendency to kind of dismiss that those things is, but in the study of religion, 
we don't do that. We take whatever happens, we kind of make the argument of like, what are its effects? We don't act ask whether it's true or false, but what are its effects on the person? And by understanding its effects on the person or the society or the community, then we can understand what happened. Yeah. Whereas other fields might start with, well, was it true or false? We work backwards. You know, and in this case, like as a religion scholar, I work backwards and I say, what happened to these Zimbabwe kids? Look at its effects. It still affects those 62 kids 20 years later. Look at all these effects. 62 years later, they're still sticking by their same story. What does that mean? For me, from this perspective of religion, because its effects are so wide ranging, so real and manifested in their lives, of course it happened. Yeah. To argue that it didn't happen is to reject and repudiate all of its effects. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why we're at 30 minutes here. But that's why I think um, it's an interesting story. And I think uh, it makes a lot of sense and really um, kind of ferments in my mind that, that something's there. Something's there. All right. Yeah. So maybe tomorrow we can get into ghost stories. What do you want to talk about? Oh, I was going to talk about, was Darwin wrong? About natural selection? Uh, maybe, yeah. Okay, yeah, was he wrong about that? Um, <clears throat> yeah, because this is a lot of, you maybe heard growing up, that Darwinian theory was pretty, mm -hmm. like Darwin had it right. Darwin was like, so the basic idea that he had, <clears throat> he went to the Galapagos Islands and he said, all right, so let's go um, basically looking at the diversity of biotic life on the Galapagos Islands. And from looking at biotic life, he saw the diversity, diversity and complexity of life. Yeah. So he came up with the idea that we evolved, you might summarize it by survival of the fittest, as you've probably heard, um, which is the idea that basically we evolved through competition. So competition was the key that allowed us to go from a single cell organism to what we are today. Mm -hmm. This was called natural selection. Mm -hmm. All right. Sounds good. All right. But that's what we gr heard growing up. Right? Yeah. That's what we heard. But not everyone agreed with him. All right. Not everyone. Specifically starting in the 1960s, 1970s, there started to be some issues with Darwin. Some issues, all right? <laughs> so, which we haven't heard talked about a lot. This is kind of the thing. Um, not a lot of people know about the controversies with Darwin. Mm -hmm. And to question Darwin, you might think, oh my gosh, people are going to be like, oh, you're, you know, conspiracy theorist mm -hmm. or you're, no, science has been very controversial and has refuted Darwinianism and neo -Dar It's called neo-Darwinianism. Mm -hmm. um, Richard Dawkins, of course, is, if you, Richard Dawkins writes a lot he hates religion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he is an atheist, mm -hmm. a huge proponent of Darwin. Mm -hmm. And he's pushed Darwin, very much so. However, Lynn Margulis, she's at Boston University. Yeah. She was Carl Sagan's first wife. If you know Carl Sagan, we got to talk more about Carl Sagan too. Yeah. She found some holes in Darwin's idea. It's not just, you probably heard the missing link idea. That wasn't the issue for her. Right. The issue for her was that, um, well, 
the primary thing is that there's no evidence of competition in nature. There's no evidence of it. If you go out, and this was her idea with, um, she thought Darwin and basically evolutionary biologists need to actually get out and live in nature yeah. because you will start to see that they're very, there isn't a lot of competition. Moreover, what she started to experience, just kind of looking, observing nature, was there's actually a lot of collaboration and cooperation between different animal species. Mm. She went down at an even kind of nuanced, like microscopic level, and she saw evidence of cooperation on kind of the cellular level yeah. through viruses. Mm -hmm. So she was studying organisms, like um, basically marine microbes, you know, like little stuff that's in the mud and all these little marine microbes. And she noticed <clears throat> that basically viruses would go from one microbe to another. And when they went from one microbe, they would change the microbe and the virus would be changed by them. Then they'd move on to the next microbe. And the same process would happen. And as the virus is doing this and passing between microbes, mm -hmm. it's making the microbe more complex, more diverse. Mm -hmm. And the thing with viruses is they need a host. Yep. So this is, this is though the flaw maybe in Lynn Margulis's theory, the kind of missing link in her theory is of course, where do viruses come from? Because they have no metabolism. Where the hell there is nothing on this earth that is alive that does not have a metabolic rate, does not have some sort of meta metabolicness to it. It needs energy. Okay, there's nothing out there without a metabolism except a virus. So a virus needs something with a metabolism to survive because it doesn't have its own. Therefore, it's dead. Because we define, when they declare you dead, so you're going to a body, you're looking at it. How do they notice that you're dead? It's not your heartbeat per se. It's your metabolic, your metabolism. Basically, that shuts down. Yeah, well, most people before dying stop eating. So right. That's another. Right. Exactly. They so tell you, other people you guys eat. Right. If you start to see someone not eating, of course, that's the first sign that they're dying, whether yeah. an animal or a person. Yeah. That's how you know death's coming because yeah. their metabolism is shutting down. Yeah. So that's death. Death is actually... Um, the way we define it is this like kind of the seizure or the end of your metabolism or your metabolic function. Yeah. So you stop processing yeah. energy, you stop needing energy and you stop processing it. Yeah. All right. So that's life. That's how we define it. So then is it a virus without a metabolism? Can you consider it alive? Well, technically no. But if it is depending on other living beings, then I guess it differs from us, right, in that sense. Yeah. Like a human, once they lose metabolism, they're dying, they're dead. But a virus, it doesn't have metabolism to begin with, but lives off other people's metabolism, then it's living mm -hmm. insofar as it's living on you, cohabiting with you, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's cohabitate. So I guess you'd have to redefine what life is. Yeah, so life isn't just you living. It's, life is you living off other people. It's cohabitants. Cohabitants, yeah. Yeah, and that's how Lynn Margulis defines life. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, symbiogenesis is the yeah. theory. 
um, yeah, cohabitation. Yeah. So, and that's what allowed us to evolve is this idea of cooperative engagement because a virus is terrifying, but it is cooperative. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. your cells work with it at some mm -hmm. point. Um, and the way you, you get T cells, of yeah. course, is the body's like, hey, what's going on? All right, so I'm learning from you. Okay, I'm learning. Okay, <laughs> you know, like picking up some skills from you. It's basically T cells. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're learning um, to basically pick that up <laughs> and act like them. Like, oh, okay, I can mimic you a little bit. And that's, that's basically then immunity. Right. What is immunity? Immunity is the ability for your cells to mimic those cells. So that even if the virus is living on you, it's no more affecting you. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So exactly. we still have. So you can be brought into contact with it. Yeah. We have all those deadly viruses. That Polio. Thousands yeah. of people before. Uh -huh. But we are not dying from them anymore. Oh, yeah. The bubonic plague, something like that. Yeah. yeah. A lot of those. Yeah, because your cells have learned. And this is another thing. So your cells don't look, you, you, you want the T cells specifically because um, it's on a genetic level too. Mm -hmm. So it'll change you genetically. So anytime you come into contact with a virus, it's going to change you on a genetic level. If yeah. you survive that encounter, of course, um, and then you can pass on those genetic mutations to then the next generation. So in the case of the bubonic plague, that's why you have immunity is, or uh, 1918 influenza, that's why we have immunity, is because our ancestors passed that on to us. They developed immunity, they passed it to us. So last time when we did the episode on um, Ancestry.com and hereditaries, mm -hmm. and we, we were interested in how a lot of people will think about their ancestors as, as giving them diseases, uh, genetically, you know, prone to this or that, meaning your ancestors have been at fault of giving you disease. Why does this Lynn Margulis notion of symbiosis or cohabitation change our approach to our ancestors as not giving us disease, but rather mm -hmm. giving us fortitude to overcome diseases that they were afflicted? Well, yeah, I think Margulis changes a lot of the way we approach things. A, a virus. Mm -hmm. um, she's saying that viruses are the source of life or the seed of life. Yeah. You're the compilation of, of really just viruses mm -hmm. at the end of the day. That's what she's saying, mm -hmm. that you are a virus. Mm -hmm. I mean, or like basically like the compilation of thousands of viruses that have changed your genome. So A, which is weird. That's not how we typically see viruses. We typically see viruses as this bad thing that like, oh, I want to limit my interaction with. Yeah. To limit your interaction with viruses is to limit your genetic evolution, your yeah. evolutionary development. Yeah. So that's, that's it. And B, yeah, like you said, in this idea, your ancestors are giving you, equipping you with the tools to be cooperative, mm -hmm. to cooperate, and to, to help you. Yeah, exactly. So that changes it. So rather than seeing your ancestors as a source of ill health, that's a good point. I think Mark Liss shows that your ancestors are the reason why you are healthy, mm -hmm. that you have health. Yeah. During the 20, turn of the 20th century, you have this emphasis on quarantine and keeping people away from yeah, that's what people I'm saying. who are prone to spreading disease. Yeah, now, if you follow Lynn Margulis' notion, people who are afflicted with these are potentially efficacious for your health. You should, in fact, want to have their genes. So does that signal that Darwinian's notion of st uh, the strongest, the fittest is somebody who's away from 
yeah. the disease. Uh, did that, you think, influence public health during the turn of the 20th century? Darwin's notion? I think Darwin's notion did, yeah. yeah. No, I, but I don't think when Margulis is... No, I think yeah, there's a conflict yeah. there, yeah. It, but it's interesting because if you look at like things like now, we do recognize symbiogenesis because that's the idea behind gene editing mm -hmm. is the way that they edit your genes is they're using viruses mm. and they're inserting these it's it's happening on trying to manipulate viruses that's where all this controversy with why is so much research focused on viruses but they're so dangerous yes well they're also the source of life so yeah. if they're the source of life they must be the source of health mm -hmm. so if we could manipulate and of course we've had amazing successes so in the manipulation of the polio virus for example that's been used to now treat brain tumors i mean we there is something to this so the yeah. the very source of what we think is ill health which is why the way we treated it in the 20th century i agree with you mm -hmm. they went with darwin which is this idea of competition mm -hmm. survival of the fittest only one will survive mm -hmm. as opposed to this idea of cooperation yeah yeah it's it's totally cooperation it's completely at odds with some of our understanding of health, yeah. understanding of lockdowns, quarantine, yeah. uh, masks. You know, in this one, it is that your encounter with viruses is the source of your health. Yeah. But yeah, I think Margulis, on the other hand, too, does point out that, like, you know, this genetic mutations as they develop, not everybody survives. Like, this is so she did hold that. Darwin was somewhat right. She did think that natural selection happened in who survives and who doesn't. Now, I disagree with her there because I think it's not necessarily natural selection. I would say that a lot of the reason why people survive or not has a lot to do with their environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. I don't even think it's quite natural selection. I, there, I also think it's symbiogenesis with the environment. So if you're living in a, you know, an environment where you have better access to care, better access to food, better access, you're going to more likely survive. So it's not survival of the fittest. You're only going to survive because of the help of others. So let's talk about religion because religion can easily be defined as relationships of care mm -hmm. uh, that are efficacious for collective health. We think about Emil Durkheim, he says religion is this collective effervescence, this energy that spreads between bodies. And you think about those energies as like sense of care, sense of responsibility, mm -hmm. and that energy is more than the sum of the individuals. So there's something sacred, something ephemeral, right? Something transcendent there. And it seems like those definitions of religion go very well with Margulis's definition of religion or definition of life or the sense of like survival happening because of relationships with each other. Yeah. Does that uh, allow us to understand religion better? Because at the beginning you said that Richard Dawkins was a big Darwinian, mm -hmm. yet also big dismissive, dismissed religion. Mm -hmm. And going back to undergrad, I recall, we kind of looked at passages from Dawkins and others, and we focused on the way they assumed what religion was. And their yeah. notions of religion, we recall, were quite doctrinal, mm -hmm. as opposed to, I think, what we're yeah, talking about metaphysics. here. Yeah, metaphysical. Yeah, they're not dealing with metaphysical religions. So just to define what that is, medical metaphysical religions is religions based around experience mm -hmm. experience of the transcendent mm -hmm. and the problem with metaphysical religions why they don't work well with doctrinal religions like christianity mm -hmm. is because how do you define the experience of just transcendence 
Yeah. A, it's going to be different for everybody. So you mm -hmm. can't limit it to a set of doctrines. Mm. B, how, how do you put that into words? How do you put into words what it's like to transcend space and time? You can't do it. So metaphysical religions, you know, they just don't. Yeah, exactly. So Richard Dawkins is going to assume religions like doctrinal religions, like a series of yes, no commands. Mm. It's like, do you believe this, 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 and this? That's a doctrinal religion, like Christianity. Do you hold that Jesus is Lord, God, and Savior, something like that, um, as opposed to, yeah, metaphysical religions, which is just kind of like all out there yeah. and hard to define, and it's yeah. different for everybody, which, yeah, I think we're moving more towards metaphysical religions. We've always been in metaphysical religions, whether yeah. or not we've acknowledged it. What yeah. I mean by that is even Christianity, right? Christianity has a mystical tradition. Yeah has a metaphysical tradition. Yeah. And if you look at where Christianity is most popular, it's always in the mystical traditions. Yeah. Always. They, people always tend to the mystics. Yeah. They don't trend to the popes. <laughs> yeah. They don't. They don't find comfort in the popes. Never have. Uh, you know, when you ask someone, at least like being from like Catholic background, who their favorite like saint is, they always have it. And it's always like Teresa of Avila or like one of these crazy mystics. They love them. You know. Why does having this interpretive approach of metaphysical religion where emotions are interpreted, they cannot easily be just given like a command. How does it allow for the symbiosis, that kind of, that relationship that Margulis is talking about, the viruses cohabiting with us and building immunity and then that kind of like approach that is because different than the Darwinian notion of strong yeah, because cohabitation assumes transcendence or it assumes that you transcend yourself through yeah. the help of others. Yeah. So it's transcendence through others. So yeah. that other thing, whether it's a virus, um, allows you to literally transcend your genetics, develop a mutation that yeah. allows you to then become that virus. I mean, your cells learn how to become it, learn how to mimic it. Um, so that's, that's maybe how you could say it. it's very similar to metaphysical religions, I think. But yeah, no, I think also the thing with metaphysical religions, it's not all happy and nice. Um, this is another thing with metaphysical religions that they don't work well with children because they're terrifying. Mm -hmm. Metaphysical religions deals with things like demons, terrors, nightmares, you know, like in, in metaphysical religions, you're just talking about some serious evil out there and it can't be reduced down to just like good versus evil or you know bad versus good that's kind of um dichotomy with metaphysical religions you get always get this complex idea that evil is embedded within these frameworks and it's it's hard to ever root out any one thing um, they always have very complex and sophisticated understandings of morality. And that's why also it doesn't work well in our world. Like it doesn't work well for our institutions. Like our political institutions are all based around binaries. We're good, they're bad. That's it. Um, so you, of course, they tend towards doctrinal religions, which, which say this is good, this is bad. You know, they, they um, reduce down the world in an easy way for people to consume. And that's why they work well with institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that, but metaphysical religions allow for a certain complexity that give them longevity over time, as opposed to like doctrinal religions. 
Yeah, no, these are all like, and so Lynn Margulis, the reason I'm saying this is because her theory was predicated on some serious terror and evil. I mean, to think of ourselves as viruses, she even thought of us as viruses on the earth. Um, Margulis took her eye theory even further with the Gaia hypothesis and argued that we are viruses to the earth. Um, in that we are, as a species, something that's almost extraterrestrial-like. Mm -hmm. We are not the earth and the earth is not us. Yes, the earth shapes us mm -hmm. and we shape it, but it is not us. Yeah. Uh, and this gets into all sorts of theories because she never answered where viruses come from. She hypothesized they developed from bacteria. Yeah. That's a theory. There's some people that say they come from space. And there's, there's increasing evidence that maybe there's some truth mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. um, but again, this is all out there. But uh, she argued that the way that we suck the earth of resources and energy in the same way that a virus sucks energy from its host. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, and she had a very sophisticated moral understanding of people. Like Darwin was actually pretty pro people, like pretty, you know, like, yeah, you know, um, less like, it's like, people are like terrible, like filled with prejudice and pride and arrogance and hubris and, you know, and of course she was such an uh, embattled figure because everybody's like, how dare you take on Darwin? You know, who do you think you are? So she was always embattled and people always treated her terribly, especially in academia. And, and even though her theories were accepted, eventually mm -hmm. <laughs> um and i and so i think that that's also part of it too because it it is metaphysical religions always have a very similar understanding of humanity as neither good nor bad but a kind of compilation of it yeah and i i think this actually gets to i mean i don't know hannah arndt if you want to talk about hannah arndt's theory of evil that is mundane it's the lack of creativity and thinking. Yeah, so we, yeah, exactly. We tend to think of evil as like this big, bad villain that's like gonna kill everybody and like that's evil. No, evil is manifested through the everyday actions of good people mm -hmm. who think they're doing good, yeah. who think they are acting the least selfishly. Uh, and that's what Hannah Arndt found. And she studied Eichmann. So Eichmann was infamously that Nazi general um, who was responsible for horrors yeah. against Jewish communities and many other communities. Uh, and she studied him and she thought that she was going to learn that Eichmann was a terrible, terrible guy. Like she thought, oh my gosh, this guy, he's just going to be like this evil. And then much to her horror, Eichmann turned out to be like a normal dude who had a family and he was acting in what he thought was the best interest of saving his family and preserving his family. And he was a bureaucrat and he was just doing things that he thought to save his job. This was what any of us would do, right? Like the least selfish thing you think you could do. Um, and much to her horror, that's what she discovered, is that these Nazi generals did not like think that they were being bad. 
they did everything with the full belief that they were good. They were morally righteous. They were just doing what they had to do. And um, so there's a great movie that came out too. It's called A Hidden Life. Oh, I forget. It's about that director. I can't remember his name. But yeah, he makes A Hidden Life. It's really good. It's about a dissenter, a Nazi dissenter. And what I don't like about like other films about that era is sometimes they take the cheap route out and they'll just say, oh, you know, like you always identify with Jewish communities. You always hate the Nazis. They, they purposely will have you identify with Jewish communities against the Nazis. But I think that that gives the audience a cop out mm -hmm. and allows them to imagine themselves that they would have acted differently. But of course they wouldn't have. Yeah. They would have been part of Nazi supporters. 90% yeah. of society was. It was the minority yeah. that dissented. Yeah. But in the movie, A Hidden Life, the dissenter, the way that the, I forget the director's name, he's a famous director, but the way he films the movie, it's to have you identify with the dissenter <laughs> or to identify with the Nazi Nazis. supporters yeah, and Nazis yeah. and to come to like hate the dissenter, to be annoyed by the dissenter. Yeah. Because the dissenter, of course, by dissenting against the Nazis, he's represented as exposing his family to shame. And you see that in the film as exposing his wife and children to pain to financial ruin. And in the film, you're watching this all take place and you're like, come on, man, come on, like help your wife out. You're like your wife, your children, you're really doing this to them, you know? And you feel yourself. And by the end of the film, you're like, oh my God, I would have been a Nazi supporter. Yeah. Much to your horror. And I, I think that the point is that that is evil. Like you were saying, the mundane. And it's so a part of who we are, my point being. It's, yeah. it's, it's so hard to actually be good. The, it, people assume that it's hard to be evil. No, it's very hard. Sometimes you have to act very selfishly to be good. People yeah. assume that like um, being good requires, you know, being non-self. No, it's being good requires being annoying. An yeah. annoying, selfish person sometimes yeah. refuses to compromise on your moral presuppositions about your world and are willing to destroy your family, if so doing, to shame and to embarrassment and financial ruin. And it is. And I think Mark List, with her theory, had, had a similar idea about humanity. Uh, for better or worse, because that was her point. She wasn't saying it's either just like a virus. A virus can kill yeah. millions, yeah. but it can also allow for genetic mutations that create humanity as we know it, that created the complexity, the biotic diversity. You know, uh, you talk about child, like the metaphysical religion is tough on children is something that struck me because in a book called The Feminization of American Culture. And yeah. Douglas argues that women during the mid 19th century were invested in cultivating a sentimental home. Yeah. And it also affected the way they would go to the graveyard. So rather than thinking of the graveyard as the place of the dead, they were decorated with dolls. Mm. And they saw childhood as almost like a divine state uh, where you, know, you saw through the child what good 
was goodness was hidden in the child and it was a complete reversal of puritans mm-hmm. who did think that childhood that, that the faster you make a child an adult the better it mm-hmm. is because 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 it was a bad thing a child mm-hmm. was actually pretty much non-existent like mm-hmm. agrarian societies there was no such thing as a child mm-hmm. state and you know you were invisible you were just you were made to work as quickly as you could as quickly as you could walk on your two feet um but with the advent of psychology and stuff you know there's this notion that the child's psyche requires a certain development a child mm-hmm. the, there's a certain time that is set apart for children they have certain feelings that are just their feelings and the point of all of it is this kind of goodness of the child this kind of you know inherent yeah. goodness of a child and child is a vessel for for the divine uh, a sentimental house a docile house a nurturing mother mm-hmm. there's not a lot of talk about evil uh, there's no talk about ghosts there's no talk about this kind of complex morality of mm-hmm. that a virus that kills you can also give you life oh that's a good point too because children are the most exposed to viruses usually mm-hmm. mm. Yeah, and that's not like, the kind of thing we get from this literature on the sentimental. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I was thinking of sorry. Yeah, no go yeah. on. Because because back then the migrant child, the child of the migrant was very much that the specter of the migrant child was something that was so gory. Mm-hmm. And all of this kind of domesticity, the sentimental home was coming about was being manufactured in response to the specter of the migrant child because the migrant child uh roamed around the streets acted like an adult went to salons went to vaudevilles went to theater um worked earned money um uh, and completely defied the distinction between adults and child and and was unsafe was seen to be a threat a you know a menace by by how uh, unsheltered they were mm. so it's very interesting that you know you think about this like you know safety security health so much so much so much of comes about this notion of the child you know mm. shelter it from delinquency shelter it from all these bad influences but what margulis is saying is actually the child was not sheltered is yeah. is the one who's going to be surviving well, yeah. uh, because they are well to give you an example polio right. didn't it's of course it it's uh, a great example only yeah only affected wealthy primarily affected wealthy children lived in homes that were that's something most people would not less, think about because yeah. think about polio think about poor people you know yeah, all the polio vaccination campaigns happen in like yeah. the northwest frontier province right. of Pakistan <laughs> where like there's militants and poverty and no cities and no wealth and mm-hmm. you don't think about polio as something that happens in a nice house yeah it completely belies our assumptions about um, who the polio victim is yeah and it it's kind of interesting cuz yeah they say that was the idea is like why wasn't it affecting migrant children migrant tr- children seemed immune to polio yeah. in america yeah and so it had a lot of people and a lot of people thought because they're exposed to more viruses to yeah. more germs to more dirt growing up which for some reason gave them the ability to fight polio yeah but any yeah so that that kind of like inverts yeah and reifies what margulis is saying yeah, yeah. just that we should expose ourselves but with that exposure comes dangers yeah that completes the first episode of paranormativity join us next week for more ghostly encounters and visit ratlabmuseum.org for more information about the religion art and technology lab <laughs>